episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. Today, we are going to be talking about vetoes. Fun. I, I love I love this. These are the nitty gritty conversations that spurred this uh, type of podcast to begin with. Um, so we'll be talking about just like vetoes, what's happening in the legislature right now, why the state has them, how they get used, kind of those big picture things. Um, and I want to welcome to the show representative and regular contributor Emily Kornheiser from Brattleboro. Hi, Emily. Hi, Olga. Good to see you. It's good to see you, too. And welcome back to the show, Speaker of the House, Jill Krowinski. So glad you can be here. Thanks. It's great to be back. Um, So just for, I'm going to even start super big picture. Um, According to the Secretary of State's office, vetoes um, went through kind of a, a lot of different iterations throughout Vermont's history to get to where we, we are now. In general, uh, they tend to be used by governors around policy disagreements. If the governor happens to think the legislation was hasty, which I don't quite understand what that means, but I, I bet that's a nice broad brush. And if they feel there's some constitutional <laughs> violations. Um, to date, Phil Scott, our current governor, um, holds the, the mantle the distinction, the award, I don't know what you want to call it, dubious distinction maybe, of having vetoed the most um, legislation. Um, the second behind him is Howard Dean uh, with with 21. I think uh, Scott's up to 23 at this point, with his most recent veto being of H-157, which was an act relating to the registration of um, contractors. And I believe he cited policy disagreement in that one. Um, so Emily, let's let's just start dive right in. What what for you is compelling about vetoes, and and why did you want to talk about it today? Well, part of it is that it's not just 157, um, which was sort of the most recent one, but we also have two sort of looming threats of vetoes, um, which is a really responsible gun safety bill. Um, And then also the Brattleboro charter change, which I think is of interest to our core listeners here. And that's Um, the charter change to allow youth voting, correct? Yes, yes. And so those both have um, veto threats hovering around in the ether right now. Um, And then, you know, last year there was the rental safety work that we did that was vetoed. And you know, so there's all of that. There's sort of the big policy problems. There's the very serious challenges that I'm having with the Brattleboro Charter change and like the will of the voters and how that plays out through the course of its work. But there's also something that's from the very beginning of my time in the legislature that was interesting to me about how when we're voting on bills the first time around, there's sort of the usual dynamics of people voting based on, you know, values and their constituents and all of these things. But when it gets to vetoes, people get like territorial about like the division of powers. And I think that's a very interesting part of um, vetoes too. And so I just like want to dive into some of those dynamics before we get into like the nitty gritty of, and Jill has seen so much more of this in her time than I have. And so I'd love to dive into like the ethos of vetoes and veto overrides, even before we get into the nitty gritty details. Fantastic. Jill, I'd love, love to hear 
Talk to us about the ethos of vetoes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's true. It's so fascinating. You know, um, I, in my time here, I've never experienced um, a a point in time where vetoes have been used so much and so, so late in the game in some ways. And we really try when we're working on legislation to get the input from the administration and try to work together to find compromises and a a path forward. And we do that around the chamber um, with members of different parties and we get through this process and we get to a veto and uh, the governor and just like other little pieces about this, as we go through it, when we send the governor a bill, um, sometimes it has to sit in editing for a while. The bill just doesn't automatically get sent there. Uh, We make sure that all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, we're sending the right version over. And then when we send it over to the governor, the governor has five business days uh, to, to review a bill. And that's every day except Sunday. So there's this there's this time um, allotted for them, and it gives people an opportunity, knowing that he has the bill, to advocate one way or the other, to sign it. Um, the other option is that he can let it go into law uh, without without their signature. And so there's three paths that a bill can take when it gets to the governor. Uh, what I have found in my time in the legislature, and I think this has been the tradition that. Uh, you know, we we believe that we are the voice, the will of the people, and that however the legislature voted um, is is what the outcome should be. And so, you what you'll see are people crossing party lines um, to follow to follow that um, in one direction, and then those who are supporting their governor who is in power at the time will support. Um, that governor's decision on a on a veto. So it is it is fascinating to see um, those dynamics play out. Mm-hmm. I never thought that we would be doing so many vetoes around charter changes, and I anticipate that uh, we we may be seeing more of those as well. You know, we had a we had a good strong vote on the Brattleboro charter change. Uh, it was like it was 102 to 42. Um, in the we've legislature, been, in the House. In the legislature, in the House. Thank yep. You. And so we need uh, 100 votes to override a veto. Hmm. And what's the sense right now? Does it seem like that override will happen regarding the... Well, we haven't even gotten... I mean, know. he hasn't vetoed it yet. What I know is that we had a great letter to the editor about it. We, um, I know it, like at least 100 high school students at BUHS have written to him in the last couple of days asking him to sign it into law. Our select board is writing to him. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that Jill was saying about the charter changes, like, mm-hmm. I mean, about um, veto overrides, is that people might, like people really do, they vote on the policy when it's on the floor the first time but then it becomes sort of a team sport. And so it's hard to, I think sometimes we, we try to get more than a hundred so that we're signaling that broad support, but mm-hmm. people sometimes sort of switch the team that they're on when it comes to the veto override mm-hmm. in both directions, in all directions, not just. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So um, I'll, I'll just share this uh, probably Emily and, and Jill, you know this, but I'll, I'll share it for listeners. One mm-hmm. thing that stood out for me, when I went to the Secretary of State's office and was just kind of reading up on on vetoes and the history of vetoes in Vermont, 
one thing I found interesting is that in the Wayback Machine, one of the arguments around vetoes kind of for and against, as I understand it, was these discussions around separations of power Mm. and um, how that kind of worked out over time in the Vermont Constitution as well. And so that just is standing out for me now based on what you just said about how people might flip on their votes after the veto comes down of, you know, is it about policy? Is it about siding with your, your quote unquote governor? Um, and I just, I, oops, as I knock over my computer, I just find that an interesting intersection sitting here on the sidelines, watching things. It is. Uh, I guess I'll add that, you know, we are, we are doing this work in a really uh, tough time in our world right now, right? <laughs> we are doing this and through a pandemic that we are very much still working our way through. Um, we're not out of the woods yet with the pandemic. And we've been doing a lot of this work online. And so uh, like I'm thinking back to last year when the governor vetoed two charter changes and we had two veto overrides online. And I was really curious to see if us being online would have a different um, impact uh, because we weren't in the building and maybe because things that were different, uh, it would play out differently. And it, and it, and it really didn't. And so I thought that was another uh, fascinating thing. If you like to like nerd out on, on like <laughs> legislation and, and legislative process, I think it's, it's um, we've been adapting in a way that is so unique. And I think and, you know, in the future, we're going to be looking back to see about how our little experiment here worked for us to continue to govern and stay safe. And I think we've done a really good job doing that. And even even in that uh, different model, um, that was still consistent of how uh, votes played out at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Emily. So. Well, I'm sort of torn because I'm really interested in this team sport aspect of it because I remember my first veto override mm-hmm. and I didn't play any sports as a kid. And I know, I think you're a big football fan, Jill, but I have like, I really have nothing on any of that. I try, it's just like my brain doesn't have the mm-hmm. synapses to make it work. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But um, that first time I was like, oh, we're like on like this, like this is a sport all of a sudden for the first time. Um, and I could feel like the family camaraderie and the team camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And like, there's just like this totally visceral connection that everyone formed during veto overrides that weren't there when we're just debating regular policy and voting on it. And I, that did still happen when we were virtual. And that surprised me because I didn't, because we couldn't all like, exchange the hormones that made that somehow possible the first time. So that was really, that was very cool to see. I am fascinated by the veto overrides and charter changes. I think we've had a bunch of conversations around Dylan's rules on the happy hour um, and like being in Dylan's real state and what that means. And like sort of even the idea that we need to do these charter changes in the legislature is sort of fascinating. But the idea that like the town would vote or the city would vote and then the House would vote, and then the Senate would vote, and then the House would concur, and then the governor would override. It's just like how, and each time he's overridden one of these charter change vetoes, he said, like, I just think it needs more examination, or I just think that, like, we need to make sure the democracy is working. It's like, how many more Mm -hmm. 
rounds of representation can you possibly fit into a process? Mm-hmm. It's so well, true. It is so true. I, you know, we, we just passed the Springfield charter change and we talked extensively about how, how voters had access to read in so many different places. And, and it had multiple years of votes where it had come to. And, and so even before it had gotten to us in the state house, there had been multiple votes on it just to get it to, to that point. And then, yes, from there, it, it will go from the House to the Senate and back to the House and then to the governor. And it's an extensive process. It's meant to make you be very thorough um, and do the work. And so uh, it, it is a it, it's. It's a tough place to, for, for me anyway, when, when towns have done the work to have the votes to, um, to see this outcome. It's really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think particularly with the Brattleboro Charter Change and the Montpelier Charter Change, the charter changes that are like about, or the Burlington, sorry, the Minuski Charter Change, but the charter changes that are like about voting rights. And so all these people have gotten together and voted to say like, we believe in this access to the ballot and then it just becomes and then Brattle, you know and then the house like with their representation from each town does it too mm-hmm. it's just so many layers of right. i think when it's vetoed that type of bill is that type of charter change is vetoed it really like the level of disheartening that mm-hmm. an individual voter can experience about how much their voice isn't valued in the process when something like that's vetoed is like really yeah. sort of sticks with me like the youth in Brattleboro when mm-hmm. I've talked to them about this in the last couple of days they just they're like actually confused that it's possible that this could happen mm-hmm. yeah. well and what's interesting about Brattleboro too um Brattleboro community members in Brattleboro worked on the youth vote issue for several years and I think actually brought it to town meeting a couple times and it didn't move forward. So Brattleboro has wrestled thoroughly, I would say, around um, allowing young people to vote in local elections as well. Um, and so, so yeah, and when it comes to the charter, it can feel, the, the vetoes can feel a little um, paternal, uh, a little bit. <laughs> Jill, can you tell us more or talk more about I think right at the beginning, you talked about how much work we put in to sort of collaborate with the administration so that we don't have to waste all of our time, essentially, like to make sure that we can get something across the finish line that the governor is willing to sign. And so, and like, yeah, can you just talk a little more about that? And uh, Jill, can I add to that? Um, Mm -hmm. Since you have served... Uh, through multiple administrations, if it's appropriate. I know we're focusing a lot on Governor Scott, but I'm Mm -hmm. curious too about um, styling. You know, since you have served under other administrations, is there a different approach or style or something that you're seeing right now too, if if that can help add context? Sure. Well, um, so I'll start with Emily's question about the work. And, you know, what's I, I always, you know, people will say the legislative process is like sauces making, or it's like, they're all of these things that come together. And I think what, uh, what I think is the most, the best thing is that when you are in a committee room, it is sometimes, most times, the least political place 
in the building. People are working around the table, asking really good, thoughtful questions, all working towards the same goal of what is the problem we're solving here? Do we have all the right information to make this decision? And conversations are had that either switch someone's perspective or raises a different issue. And it's, um, it's this great place where people are really diving in and doing really good policy work. And while that's happening, the administration is invited in to be part of that conversation and to give their feedback. And that happens from day one of talking about a bill to the last day before it comes out of the committee. Um, They're engaged in the process as much as they choose to be um, engaged in the process. You know, when we're working on legislation, you know, we're not coming into a committee room with our political hats on ready for battle. We're coming in saying, how can we make Vermont a better place for everyone? And how, how do we achieve, you know, the, the goals of this bill? And so you are talking about weeks in committee rooms. You're talking about, you know, getting it to the floor and having a thorough debate on the floor where sometimes the administration will have people um, of their party ask questions on the floor. And then it goes to the other body where it goes through the entire committee process. And sometimes it's more than one committee. I've seen bills that have gone to, to two or three, once a couple of times, four. You know, it's a um, it's meant, again, it's meant to be slow and deliberative, right? And the administration is encouraged and invited to be part of that. So that when it reaches his desk, there are no surprises. And I think, you know, what I have seen is that sometimes uh, they, you know, they are trying to work with us to figure it out. But then there are times where um, we know that they have just said, we're done, we're walking away. And, uh, you know, I, um, I care a lot about communication and working together and been very, really trying to have more conversations with the governor about what we're working on to, to avoid um, a veto or a veto session. So, you know, the, for example, the one bill that he uh, just recently vetoed, um, House Bill 157, or um, our consumer protection and housing bill, uh, we have time to try to make another go at this because of where we are in the legislative session, because we're not in June uh, with a two-day or three-day period. So we're going to go back and we're going to try again to see if we can find a path. And if we don't, we still have that bill um, in April that we postponed it to to work on. So it's just, it's fascinating because it's not, um, it's not a process where it's the House and the Senate work on it and then the Gov speaks. It's a collaborative process where we're bringing in agency heads and people doing the work who work on the government programs, um, who come in with their expertise to give us advice. And, you know, when I think back to uh, the different administrations, it really depends on, I've, I've, have, I'm trying to think of, you know, I started out um, with Democratic, with Democrats being in charge of the legislature and in the governor's office, and then had still, so I don't know, it would be interesting, I have not experienced what it's like to be in the minority um, with a, with a different administration. Uh, But you know, I think when you are of the same parties, you're you're communicating a lot more about what your shared goals are going into um, a session. And 
really identifying the the party's values and what you want to work on. You know, that said, I do remember, um, you know, in a really hard override vote um, on on something that Governor Shumlin vetoed, and it was really split on the floor. And um, so it's interesting how different issues and policy things will present sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Emily, you can think of some votes right on the floor where you know, it's not even by party, it's maybe by region or experience. And it's so, there are all different scenarios that can come up with how people vote and what motivates them and how that outcome is. But, you know, I, I felt um, that my my time working with the Shumlin administration was, was super collaborative and, um, but, you know, working on the same goals together where this, in this situation, I'm constantly looking for ways that we can find collaboration as opposed to picking picking sides. And I think, you know, workforce development is one that I think we've both, and affordable housing is one that we've, a couple that we've identified that we can work on together. One thing that really stands out for me too is I, you know, there's the frustration of sort of all of the labor and energy and will of people and coming up against a veto that's unexpected. Um, but there's also the reality is like, you know, the legislature passes the laws and the governor ministers the laws and what the idea that we would sort of pass something, the governor would veto it, we would override that veto. And then that same sort of body would need to carry out that law that kind of freaks me out a little bit. So like, you know, and we've, you know, we've seen that play itself out sort of more subtly in some areas and less subtly in other areas, right? Like the Global Warming Solutions Act is a sort of scenario where it was less subtle that the administration was carrying out something they weren't interested in carrying out. And that like had sort of some detrimental impacts on the actual outcome of the policy, not the outcome of the bill. Mm-hmm. But it is sort of, it's an interesting piece of this all that by collaborating as we go along, by getting buy-in as we go along, it's not just the politics of it. It's that like we wind up with policy that's implemented better because everyone who actually has to do the work is on board. It's a good point, Emily. Thank you. Um, Jill, I I know you have to leave us soon, and um, we have just five minutes before we have to go to break and hear from some of our underwriters. <laughs> so I just want to make I want to circle back to you and and check in. What do you want to leave listeners with? on this topic oh my gosh oh well, on this topic or just in life in general well in oh, general okay. in life if, if you have wisdom about life believe me we would all love to hear that everybody needs you know, more wisdom <laughs> I I you know on, on the topic of vetoes I I know we're in an election year which sometimes will be part of of what's happening um, with certain votes and with vetoes. What I would say, especially to your listeners in Brattleboro, that if you care about this charter, um, please reach out to the governor's office and let them know. Like they, he needs to hear from you. Um, as we get closer to, to him getting that bill and the clock starting, it's just really important. And, uh, and, and it's possible, it's possible that maybe um, someone is able to get to him and to change his mind. So I would just say, keep up your advocacy work and raise your voices. And if 
um, we can get him to sign it or go into law without a signature. That's great. We'll make that happen. If it doesn't and he vetoes it, then we'll work so hard together to override the veto. So keep, just keep up that work. That's so important. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. Emily, anything you want to add before we, we hear from our underwriters? No, I think Jill said it, that I'm just super appreciative. Jill, you are very busy and focused on a lot of important issues. So I really appreciate you joining us to wax philosophical about the branches of government with us tonight. Uh, absolutely. Anytime. I love being here and looking forward to being back in the future. Thank you. Hey, everyone, stay tuned. Uh, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television as well as some public access stations and peg stations across the state. And Emily's YouTube channel, our Facebook page, the Montpelier Happy Hour and the Montpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. And I want to send a quick um, thank you and apology to listeners. It turns out we were having some technical difficulties that this self-taught podcaster did not realize we were having. Um, and our podcast is not updated uh, in several weeks. So thank you to the listeners who brought that to our attention. And uh, so sorry that happened. And hopefully I've got some starting back up again. So uh, if you haven't had the Montpelier happy hour lately in your podcast feed, you should now. And Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier happy hour are those of the host and the guests, not stations, not the platforms, not the employers, not the partners, not the friends, just the people talking and their mouths. Love it. Thank you. For those who are just joining us uh, before the break, we were talking to Speaker of the House Jill Kerwinski about vetoes and particularly vetoes in the administration of Governor Phil Scott, who uh, has vetoed more than 20 pieces of legislation. And it's interesting because we often talk about how he has vetoed the most to date in in Vermont history. Howard Dean comes in second with 21. But what I find interesting is between Howard Dean and the next like governor down uh, to have, there's, there's actually a pretty gap, pretty big gap. Um, I think Jim Douglas, you know, holds a bit of a record. Um, A few like Madeline Cunin and some other um, governors have come in after that with like eight pieces of legislation they they vetoed so you know having vetoed I think he's Scott has vetoed about 23 pieces of legislation um give or take in not that many years in not that many years it's actually pretty significant um and I seem to remember in 2018 with the with the budget and the special session uh there were some vetoes going back and forth and Mm -hmm. it was a little messy and a little hairy um So for you, Emily, um, I know we want to dive into some of the recent vetoes, Mm -hmm. but for you, um, 
what what has it meant for you in your experience doing all this work and then then seeing these vetoes come through not just on the charter changes but just legislation in general because some of the things he's vetoed have been some key pieces I would say of legislation for the Democratic Party yeah I um it's interesting because there's the piece of it that's like oh we worked really hard and I really believe in this legislation and I think it'll make a really big difference for Vermonters and I'm just super bummed that that's sort of taken away from us, taken away from the legislature and more importantly, taken away from Vermonters and their quality of life. But there's also this sort of piece of the whole puzzle, which is the governor, the administration and the scale of staff and resources that they have available to them compared to the legislature and the scale Mm -hmm. of staff and resources that we have available to us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when the governor signs something into law or, you know, funds are expended because the governor signed something into law. The press release is always the governor has. And so the governor gets to take credit for all the good things. Um, And then with the veto message, they're always quite short and they poke all the holes in the thing. um, And that's sort of the last word on it a lot of the time. Mm. And even sometimes if we override it, that gets sort of drowned out um, in the face of the messaging around what was wrong with the legislation. Mm -hmm. And often when I read the overrides, they feel very disingenuous to me. And I don't actually generally find that of the administration. Sure, there are details that, you know, can be disingenuous in politics sometimes. You know, political rhetoric Mm -hmm. explicitly Mm -hmm. can often sound very disingenuous. But most of the time when the administration shows up in a committee, they are collaborating and problem solving and all the things that Jill said. Not always. Sometimes there's just like talking points that no one strays from. But like, you know, in an eight-person conversation, 10-person conversation, it's kind of hard to like be too focused on your talking points and not mm-hmm. be embarrassed with yourself. So it's that sort of narrative that like these two random things that are wrong um, override all of the possible good that's mm-hmm. available here. Um, and so in the case of the rental housing safety bill, the governor might have had what's mentioned in the veto override are these small sort of administrative differences they don't seem like core philosophical differences. Mm-hmm. And those all could have been addressed before it became law, mm-hmm. like before we passed the bill. Mm-hmm. And so that can be very, very frustrating because the rhetoric sort of is what survives at the end of the day yeah. and not the sort of problem we were trying to solve and the acknowledgement of Vermonters' struggles um, or a vision for Vermont. And sort of the opposite end of that is the very philosophical side, which is the charter changes, which seem to be vetoed purely on philosophical grounds. Um, When in my opinion, I don't even really think most of the time the legislature should be voting on charter changes. I like, I think it's a level of interference personally that I don't think is really necessary, but that like, why this one person who I understand was elected, but gets to override that many levels of democratic control is just mind boggling to me in the case of charter changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of, that's the disappointment for me in them there. I think it's really cool when we override a vote. It's really like one of the only times in this work that I get that, like, like I said, that team sporty <laughs> adrenaline feeling, but like, I don't trust that feeling in my body. 
Um, mm. I think like a lot of what's happened that's wrong in the world is like people really responding to that particular type of endorphin rush. Like, I think that's pretty much like how wars are fought. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I did watch the Super Bowl. I might have gone to sleep before it was over, but like, I don't, <laughs> um, I don't generally trust that feeling in my body. And so veto overrides make me a little bit uncomfortable because I, they do, they don't feel like they're about the override, you know, they, they, because the governor has sort of lost track of the theme, mm-hmm. it seems like we sometimes lose track of it too. And that's uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. I, I was just thinking about what you said about not, not trusting that feeling and, it always brings me back to, um, oh, how do I put it? The best I can relate to is, you know, having a, a, a camp, a foot in the, the fiction writing camp. Um, when I'm writing a, a movie script and it's uh, whatever it's about, we want the, the hero to triumph, whatever challenge they are trying to triumph. Do. And, and in that case, you want your audience to have that emotional feeling. Like that's mm-hmm. part of kind of the emotional payback people get for sitting through your story. Um, and I think that's why we love things like novels and movies and television. But I do sometimes worry when that kind of sense of drama um, leaks into our democracy. Um, because I, I don't know that it's the right place for it. <laughs> and and it's when you start you start getting like this sense of as you said endorphin rush is kind of uh guiding your democracy rather than a deep thorough process uh so thank you for sharing that it it um i'm kind of glad when it comes to at least democracy you don't trust that feeling (laughs) i often it's probably one of the pieces of this work that left me feeling like the most you know, and this work can be pretty alienating pretty regularly. It can also be like created an incredible sense of belonging and purpose and um, satisfaction. But how um, how uncomfortable I was with that feeling felt really alienating the first few times I was sort of um, part of something that called that up in me because I, I didn't get the feeling that other people are as uncomfortable with as I was but like I said like I, I don't sport and so I think that's the place that most people practice that feeling younger in life um so it becomes more comfortable as they get older I don't know I'm sorry for like any sports fans who think I'm I don't know <laughs> let's change the subject <laughs> let's get off the sport you're you, two non-sports people are like talking sports it's how it, it's gonna get bad soon yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, let's dive into some of the definitely the recent legislation that the governor has vetoed. Um, and I, I'd also love to hear from you just based on your experience. And again, the the journalist in me wants to make it clear that we haven't heard from other parties, we haven't heard from the administration on this. So this is your experience. Is there a theme or a pattern or any shape to the governor's veto, the type of policies he vetoes or the reasons he's vetoes um, that, that at least in your experience that you have seen or. I mean, sort of lately it, 
it feels a little like raw meat. There's an election season coming up, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a lot of confusion that I think he let the Montpelier charter change pass into law, but vetoed the Burling, the Winooski charter change. And they were the same charter change. They were allowing citizens yeah. to vote. Yeah. And so, you know, Winooski is a much larger population of folks of color. And so I think there was a lot of particular discomfort about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, with the Brattleboro charter change and he hasn't vetoed it yet. I don't want to like railroad him into vetoing it. I really hope he signs it into law, but for someone who talks constantly about demographic challenges, this seems like a really awesome, no cost way to like really focus on the youth demographic and making Mm -hmm. them feel welcome and included in their community. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of places where the charter change, the vetoes often feel like very sideways from the governor's policy goals Hmm. and more about sort of rhetoric. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. And I've never talked to him about the choices he's making. So I don't know. And I've never been on a, I don't think I've ever been on the lead committee of a bill that was vetoed either. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm, Good point. Just like by, I mean, I think I, I think that will happen soon. But it hasn't happened yet. So I, yeah. Um, I don't know if I would have a different perspective if I had done that. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to revisit it. When, once that yeah. happens, we shall revisit yeah. it. And say, well. so <laughs> what was that experience like? Um, talk to me about some of the, the recent uh, legislation that um, has either been vetoed or, or there's a very good chance it may be vetoed. I know so, the most recent last week was the H-157 about registering contractors. So... Yeah. So let's see. Um, The contractor registry was vetoed that it just passed the Senate. Um, Before that, there was a rental registry and maybe it's just the word registry. They're very different systems. Um, So in Vermont to register something is the lowest form of regulation. Mm, Interesting. Um, Yes. And I know the word has like a lot of really uncomfortable connotations for people who lean libertarian even a little and I don't mean like politically libertarian I mean like emotionally libertarian Mm -hmm. um people who are worried about sort of state control and state invasion Mm -hmm. um the word registry I think has a lot of visceral stuff for people but in Vermont it's sort of the language that we use for the lowest form of regulation Mm -hmm. and so when we're passing a registry it means that like we want to know the scale of this thing that's happening, but we don't necessarily want to tell the people who are doing it how to do it or what to do. Mm-hmm. And so the contractor registry is just like, we want all the contractors to like say that they're contractors. So we like can find them if we want to like share some useful information with them about like grants that are available or like technical assistance or lead paint. I don't know. Um, and then like might add sort of guidelines to the practice, but it's not licensing, mm-hmm. which is like- Yeah, that's another level of- It's a much, yeah, yeah. Or even certification is another level. Or like fully regulating, like say we do with the insurance industry. 
And so it's interesting that sort of the registry concept, I think, gets a lot of resistance, even though it's a super, super, super low bar of government interference. Similarly, with the rental registry, it's really just like people putting their apartments on a list so that we can find them and being subject to like some very, like such reasonable health and safety guidelines. Like no one wants someone living in an apartment that doesn't have, and I don't think anyone ever said, like, we think that renters should have to live without these health and safety guidelines. Um, I never heard anyone make that argument. Mm -hmm. So it's, so those are two. And then there's the Winooski charter change. There's the threat in the Battle Road charter change. And then last week, um, we passed a firearm safety bill. Mm -hmm. I think that was last week. Um, that the governor is talking about vetoing as well. Interesting. And so let's see, I explained the rental housing registry, I explained the contractor registry. I think our listeners know about the Brattleboro Youth Foot Charter change. Mm-hmm. And so the gun legislation, the gun safety legislation um, had a few different parts. The first one and how it started in the Senate was that you can't bring guns into hospitals and includes like if you bring a gun into a hospital by accident because you didn't know you had or you forgot you had the gun it's okay you can just like you're not in trouble like it was really like pretty reasonable just like don't intentionally bring guns into hospitals and then also included um clarification on what judges can do in the case of a relief from abuse order on firearms and households um and it was really like not a change in statute but just a clarification because the judges said they felt like the existing statute wasn't as clear a directive as they would like yeah, that's the uh, relief from abuse orders and, and in the case of, this is something that's kind of been, the legislature and law enforcement have kind of been wrestling with for a few years now to try to clarify and how to best approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's and then um, the last piece is the closing of the Charleston loophole. And so right now we require background checks when someone wants to buy a firearm in Vermont. Oh, sorry. There's one more part after this. We require background checks when someone wants to buy a firearm in Vermont, Mm -hmm. but somewhat bizarrely, if your background check doesn't come back after just like a couple days, you're just issued the firearm. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So it's, yeah. So it's only if it comes back positive, like you have a, previous offense that you don't get the firearm. But if it comes back either clear or just doesn't come back, firearm is sold. And what's um, was really sort of a poignant piece of this to me is it's really much more, um, it's specific offenses that tend to not come up quickly on the background check. Oh, that's interesting. And isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And so, and those tend to be intimate partner violence related crimes. Huh. Any reason? Any? Um, I why? think some of them, they're sort of lower level and they tend to be by local police departments and not state police. Um, and so they're just like a little more buried in the background check stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And so that piece of it, which sort of, you know, people call it the Charleston loophole, but what that actually means is just ensuring that a background check comes back clear. Right. Even though everyone sort of agreed that background checks are needed. Um, And if it like gets lost in a paperwork hellscape as things sometimes do in real life, I think we've all experienced paperwork getting lost in paperwork hellscape. There's an appeals process. It's not like you're doomed forever. Mm -hmm. So 
it all like that all feels like very, very, very common sense and straightforward. Um, and so the veto of something like that is really, it seems to be on straight policy grounds, to, like on straight principle voter perspective grounds and not of actually the substance of the policy, which is all like kind of subtle and reasonable and in keeping with things that we've passed before in our existing law. And so that's an interesting part of that, the sort of the veto to me, um, mm. that it's mm. not about an inability to say administer the law, right. which would be for me a very reasonable reason to veto something like, you all thought you had a great idea, but like, actually there's no possible way that I can carry this out. So like, sorry, mm. you know? Right. Yeah. And I, it seems to me, and this is just based on the veto messages that the governor's office has produced. It always seems to me like he talks a lot about, um, oh, if we do this, it will be a burden on small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, or, yeah, that seems to be the one I see the most. <laughs> yes, okay. that one happens a lot. Oh, I don't think we were ever live on Facebook. No, my my thing says live on Facebook. I know, but my other thing seems to say it's not. So I don't know. Anyway, we'll find out afterwards. That's fine. Well, seems like technical difficulties is our our experience these days. Well, you know, Mercury was in retrograde for quite a while. Oh, boy. I don't know what it is about Mercury in retrograde, but yeah, that does tend to. That's what they say. Kick Mm -hmm. backsides. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of astrology that I'm like, yeah, whatever. But that one, I I kind of take seriously. (laughs) Any other legislation you want to touch on? No, no. I feel like that's sort of the focus. There's a lot going on. And we talked about the child tax credit and we talked about um, Mm -hmm. the reproductive justice amendment. And we're doing... It feels like we're doing really, really good work around here. Mm-hmm. Um, being back in person really makes a difference. Like we're much better able to get things done. And um, with the level of masking that everyone's really seems to be mostly compliant with, like it also feels pretty safe and it is safe. Like we're not transmitting COVID to each other. So that's super nice. Yay. Yeah. Yes, we want people to stay as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, hey, Emily, um, just doing the five minute check. Yeah. Since we do have five minutes, you mentioned the child tax credit and you mentioned um, reproductive uh, freedom. And I, I think there's a couple updates there. Would you mind just quickly updating listeners on those progress? Because didn't the House oh, yeah. and the Senate just pass... Oh, I'm sorry. I like totally, I thought we had talked about this last week, but maybe we didn't. So, cause it happened last week. Mm-hmm. So sorry. So last week we had last Tuesday, I think we had the best day of legislation in my, in my tenure here in the building. Mm-hmm. And in the same day we passed the reproductive Liberty amendment. So that was the final vote within the legislature in Vermont. We had it was the second vote for the House. We had already had two votes from the Senate. It was an incredibly moving um, conversation amongst colleagues. Mm-hmm. And we passed it resoundingly. And now it's going to go off to the voters in November. And so if folks want to get more involved in making sure that passes in November, um, you can actually just like look up the Vermont Reproductive Liberty Amendment and your first hit, I think. And I hope that doesn't change, but 
um, it's a coalition that Planned Parenthood's a part of um, mm -hmm. and doing really good work. Sorry, the Planned Parenthood Action Fund is a part of yes. separate organization. Yes. Um, and folks can go back and listen to our conversation with Charlie if they want to sort of learn more of those details. So that was just like absolutely fantastic and inspiring and beautiful. And I feel just so proud that, um, that that's going to be available for future generations to like yeah. live in their communities and live their lives fully. Yeah. So that was awesome. And that same day, um, I was really honored to report and pass the really significant child tax credit that we just passed through the house in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Um, it is by far the biggest child tax credit that has happened at the state level yet. California was really inspired by our example and they're working on one now. Wow. Um, but really hoping that this federal child tax credit and what we just kicked off in Vermont is going to make a huge difference in child poverty here and really like shift the conversation about what it means to be a community and a state that supports families and families with young children. Um, Cause I think it's a, it's been a hard couple of years for folks. Yeah. And so that feels really, really exciting and inspiring. It's a very, um, it's a fairly radical shift in how progressive our tax structure is. Um, mm -hmm. It's really sort of like one of the final steps in making sure that our tax structure is really um, focused on people paying what they can. So that felt really, really exciting too. Fantastic. Thank you for those updates. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I'm so sorry that I didn't realize that we hadn't done that sooner. So I'm so glad that you cued me for it. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, so we will toast in a moment. But before we do, if folks want to find you, if they have questions for you, they want more information, how do they do that? Folks can go to emilycornheiser.org. That's Kornheiser with a K, not a C just in case anyone didn't know that yet. Folks can go to emilycornheather.org and you can find my email address and my phone number and all my social media accounts. And I have been keeping up with a weekly newsletter, which you can find on my blog post, little linker on the website, as well as weekly office hours on Sundays at four. So just head on over to the website and you can find all those things. Fantastic. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on Fridays on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro our uh, I, um, Apple podcasts, as well as our Captivate channel and our um, Facebook page. And if for some reason we have technical difficulties that we don't know about, um, you can also email us at the Montpelier happy hour at gmail.com. You are always welcome to do that. Um, Emily. Olga. Shall we, shall we toast you today? I think we should toast to just moving forward legislation, even when it takes a long time and even yeah. when it has to go through multiple votes and even some vetoes, just the slow path of history and democracy. Definitely. To that. To Cheers. That. Cheers. Thank you, Emily. Thank you listeners. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>